Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. I am being hypersensitive today. I'm talking through a mask. Should I do that? No. Yak says I shouldn't. All right. We have to wear a mask when we come in the building now. And we get our temperature taken. Is that going to be a new thing? I mean, clearly it is for the short run. But is that going to be a new thing in the long run? Or when there's a vaccine, does it all go away? Because, you know... A lot of stuff changed about flying after 9-11, and the first time you did it, it seemed really weird. It was a whole process. You got to figure it out. What are the new rules? How come I can't take water through here, but I can buy bottled water on the other side? And, you know, a few years later, it's just habit, and you don't even notice anymore. I wonder. I don't know. I guess we'll figure that out as it happens. All right, DJ and PK, coming up today. Are you ready? Are you ready? we got college football and basketball for you in the first hour here on a Monday morning. UCLA Bruins, spring football tour, coming off a 4-8 and season. Are they going to get it together or not? Uh, my guess is not, but, you know, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, David Locke, been saving up some questions for him on the uh, on, on Rudy Gobert and, and the Max, the Super Max. You know, we're 14 to 16 to 18 months away from that decision, depending on how the NBA reorganizes its calendar. But it's looming. And I think these last two years before you get to that kind of decision, there's a lot of stuff to assess. And other teams have it with other players. But here, it's the Jazz. It's the summer of 92, or the fall if they move the, the NBA calendar. Uh, the, the summer of, uh, excuse me, start again. The summer of 21 or the fall of 21, will be massive. There are so many big-time players whose contracts are up. So we'll get to that coming up. But first, I want you to meet one of our radio partners. It's time to showcase those that are helping all of us through these difficult times. This is a partner profile on the Zone Sports Network. DJ, PK, and time to talk now with Jake Burt, co-owner of Burt Brothers. Jake, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. How we doing? We're doing well. We're doing well. So, Burt Brothers, with everything changing and people driving less, they're still driving. So, people are still buying tires. Maybe not at the rate they were, but people still buying tires. You still got all your locations rolling? All the locations are running, open, same hours, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., um, We've really just gone over the top during this whole pandemic here to uh, make it available for you for contactless drop-offs, valet services, really the whole thing. You can do everything from your home on the computer on BurtBrothers.com to buy your tires, to get your oil changed, to get your car diagnosed for runnability issues or what have you, get it checked in. So we can get it down to our locations, our shops closest to you, and and take care of you. Jake, uh, name me the best neighbor that you've had who's ever lived on your block in any of the blocks you've ever lived on. You know, you might know him. You know, he has the uh, your same initials right there. <laughs> you know, Pad, right there. You know, I, those were the great days right there, being your neighbor, PK. That was awesome. So Paul Kincaid, Paul Kincaid is a really good guy, huh? Paul, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, great author or uh, artist right there, yeah. <laughs> no, life is good. We miss you guys. Jake and I go back to the point that Jake's wife – 
on one given day, DJ, had not one, had not two, but three children on the same day. Jake Burke has triplets. How about that? I thought you were, thought you were going LeBron there for a minute. I didn't well, know so did I with his wife there. Fortunately, she stopped at three. <laughs> yeah, that put an end to that for sure right there. When you outgrow your house, your car, and your income with one pregnancy, like, uh, it's a game over right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we had good and uh, good times in Sandy right there. So now you've moved to a deluxe apartment in the sky high, high up on the east side? <laughs> oh, not not quite right there, but we, we outgrew our little starter home right there for sure. But uh, life was good. <laughs> you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned the valet stuff with Burt Brothers. So how does that work with vehicle pickup and delivery? What do you do? Oh my gosh, this is so great. You know, uh, first of all, you can set it all up online and you can call us in. We can send us an email. I mean, we really on any platforms uh, or social media channels, you can uh, get it uh, set up, but we'll come pick up your vehicle, you know, so you can just leave the keys in it, in your driveway. Um, and then we'll do the service, whatever you need. We will text you a link to pay, uh, you know, through your text message, through your phone. Um, and then we'll bring the car back to you and all sanitized, wiped down. Uh, you know, we take all the precautions. We have steering wheel covers, floor mats, seat covers, mask gloves, you know, whatever we need to keep you safe. Uh, we are following all those protocols to do that kind of stuff and yeah, keep you safe. And yeah, and then that's it. Drop it back off at the office, you know, while you're working. Um, you know, we also have too, if it's just easier for you just to drop off the vehicle, we have our shuttle services and stuff, too, that are completely sanitized and everything, too. We'll take you to the office, take you back home, uh, you know, get you back to your day so you can get your work done. So basically, Jake, it's never been easier to get your car serviced by Burt Brothers than it is now. It's so true. It's so true. And then you can take advantage of all the sales going on, the rebates on tires, you know, our already low prices on our services that we do. Um, if you have a Burt Brothers credit card, um, that is the biggest discount out there too. That takes ten dollars off your oil change every time you use it. it takes five percent off labor uh, for any of those brake jobs or service jobs that you need to do. Uh, it doubles rebates on um, you know the tires that you may be buying. Uh, and then even today, right now we've extended this. So usually you have to spend one hundred and forty nine dollars on that card to get six months no interest. You know. But right now, during these times, if you spend a dollar, you charge one dollar, you can, or just your oil change or whatever, you can do six months no interest. So if that will help you in these trying times on the Burt Brothers card, on approved credit, we can take care of you. Make it really easy. All right, so uh, on your way out the door, hit us up with uh, website, phone numbers. How do people get a hold of Burt Brothers? Yeah, the easiest way to get a hold of us is BurtBrothers.com. You know, has all the locations, has all of our services that we offer right there. Uh, totally take care of you. Has all our our promotions that we're currently going on, so you can take advantage of uh, our phone numbers to get a hold of us are right there on that website. And we're here to take care of you. We really appreciate uh, uh, you guys reaching out to us today, letting us chat about our business. You know, we're going on 30 years in, in business here in Utah, and family owned and operated. Uh, me and my brothers and my cousins were in the stores every day. Uh, my dad and Ron are still heavily involved and uh, are just grateful for our friendships and the business that we made throughout these years. And we're here to take care of Utah. 
Jake, thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Hey, you guys are great. Have a great day. Appreciate you guys. Stay safe. Take care, PK. DJ. There's Jake Burt from Burt Brothers. When we come back, David Locke on the NBA, the Jazz, and Rudy Gobert. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ, PK, and David Locke joining us. David brought to you by Murdoch Chevrolet. During the month of May, get 0% APR for 84 months, no payments for 120 days, or until January 2021 on the 2020 Silverado, Equinox, or Trax models. Go see the guys at Murdoch Chevrolet in Woods Cross or Logan. David, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. And you? I'm good. <laughs> so PK dropped a, dropped a little something there on Twitter that got people fired up, and I Uh-oh. think it's what was that? Well, I think it's really simple that people love to loathe the Lakers and they hate Kobe, and I don't think it takes very long to explain it. But PK, go ahead and tell them uh, tell them what you put out there and why, and then tell them the uh, feedback you got. As I was watching on television, uh, they on uh, Fox Sports uh, LA or whatever it's called, West, and they had Kobe, and it was after he retired, so he's sitting there, and they're reviewing his top ten moments as a Laker, and uh, they would have the Jazz 60-point. In fact, there was one, (laughs) I meant to text you on that, but uh, in that game, uh, I think it was, you were sitting courtside, I I know you were sitting courtside, but I know it was that game, because... uh, he goes over to Shaq, who's sitting in the first row, yep. and there are you taking a picture. <laughs> you can see you. You look like you got your camera phone out. So they got that, and they got the uh, uh, number one. It was the eighty. What was it? Eighty-one points against Toronto. And so he's yep. talking about it, and then they have some Laker greats like Kareem, you know, uh, Magic, talking about just the desire that Kobe had to, to get the best out of his ability and that Achilles game where he comes back, shoots the free throws, and then limps off and all that stuff, right? It's very dramatic, and obviously he was always a great interview. And as I'm watching this, I'm um, juxtapositioning it with the last dance stuff. So I put out a tweet that I thought was obvious, that, that, that Jordan, you got Jordan there playing the two-guard or swing guy, small that swing position that they play, and I put that Kobe is there close by, meaning you got Jordan one, you got Bryant two. There's a separation there, but in my mind, that's the two that I put at those positions. And I got a ton of blowback, and we talked about it here, and I'm getting it as we speak. I didn't think there was anything to say about that. I thought it was obvious. Jordan one, Kobe two. Um, So the other candidates would be... Dwayne Wade, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, depending what position you put him at. Who else? Drexler. Yeah, Kobe surpasses Drexler by a mile. Yeah, but you were just asking for I mean, I think placing Kobe historically is an interesting concept. Um, You have the five titles, though Shaq is the driving force, you know, he ends up having a few years where he plays with terrible teammates, and they're terrible. 
Um, you know, he doesn't, you know, that now there aren't a lot of players in the history of the league that um, are able to propel a team that has bad teammates, but those teams were bad. Um, he was a terrible teammate. Like, nobody ever wanted to play with him again. Um, he was, you know, the number I always kind of think is really relevant is the all-NBA number um, because it's the best way. I know it's voted on and it's got, but it's pretty accurate and it's a way to judge eras, you know, when you start talking about like, and, and so for someone like Stockton, that's unfortunate because he was only all-NBA twice in his entire career. It's two years Magic was out. Um but Kobe is like all NBA 15 times. And I think 13 of them are first team. Like that's pretty real. Like, um, that one's pretty hard to like get Reggie Miller, by the way, would be another name, but, um, and then, you know, there's just the, the element that he was, you know, for all of his scoring, he was pretty inefficient. Um, and, you know, particularly late in his career was, was super inefficient. Um, but that was kind of a weird, you know, end of his career when he just, you know, was jacking 20 shots a night, shooting 37% was, you know, that's, that's a little hard to swallow. Um, so, I mean, I think you're probably right that he's the second best. Dwayne Wade's an interesting, an interesting kind of Kobe Dwayne Wade discussion. I think it's interesting. Um, and then I don't know, you know, cause Oscar, where are you putting Oscar? Probably as a point guard. Um, and so you, so it's not, it's, you don't have to do it. I'm definitely putting Oscar at the point, and I think that the thing that uh, Wade and Kobe have in common is they're both excellent players, that's not debatable, but if you just go to the winning at the highest level, you know, getting to the finals and winning championships, they both spent a pretty good chunk of their prime playing on mediocre to bad teams. And they both got to win early in their career because they had Shaq, and they both got to win late in their career now, you know, Gasol um, and uh, LeBron, uh, you know, so when they got a better teammate alongside them, in the case of uh, Dwayne Wade, I think he's going to be behind Kobe on the list because he had fewer titles and he got a better teammate for the second go-round at the championships. Nobody argues that LeBron is better than Gasol. So Yeah, and he had eight, um, you know, eight all-NBAs versus 15 is a big difference. Yeah. Those Laker teams, by the way, that um, won the title, kind of unseating the um, Celtics, the Boozer, Darren, oh yeah, um, AK forty-seven Jazz teams. I-, I feel like those teams have gotten those Laker teams have gotten dismissed. They're pretty good, right? I mean, you go look at that roster, and um, that was like that was seven oh eight Laker team that wins the title over Boston. They kind of roll through the playoffs. They sweep the Nuggets. They take the Spurs in five. They beat us in six. This is the closest series they play. And, like, that team was great. And you got Kobe at 29, Lamar Odom, who was the number one high school player in the country in a top five pick at 28, Gasol at 27. You know, Bynum's a baby, doesn't know what he's doing. But that was a, that was a pretty good basketball team. Yeah, yeah, Phil Jackson, too. The, yeah, right, and you got one of the great coaches of all time. It's probably the greatest male coach of all time. Gino, I got asked the greatest basketball coach of all time the other day, and I went Gino Oriyama. Any complaints? 
Uh, you're talking about any level? Yeah, I just got asked what's the greatest basketball coach of all time. I thought about it for a while. I came up, you know, I think Wooden obviously has that run, but then Gino Oriama's kind of created an entire game. Yeah, the problem with right? get, uh, with uh, with saying that about a college coach is that when you get the upper hand in recruiting, John Wooden, for whatever reason, <clears throat> uh, when you get the <clears throat> upper <clears throat> when you get the upper hand in recruiting. It can get so lopsided. I mean, the gap, the talent gap, can right. just be massive. So, you know, is it really coaching? Now, it is a definition of college coaching because every college coach is their own GM. Uh, but to say any coach at any level, I mean, it really is apples and oranges between the colleges. I and the had, uh, I had a a, a, one, a person who was in women's basketball years ago explain this to me as to why there was two or three dominant uh, women's teams in college basketball and you put pat summon in that list and this person mm-hmm. said that and it's gotten better i would think uh, and this is when i was covering a lot of women's college basketball and uh said to me that there's not that many great players in women's basketball and because women aren't wired the way men are where's my playing time where's my shots they're more interested in the experience of it. And I always loved covering women's basketball and watching the benches because it seemed like they were having the time of their lives when their team was winning. And it wasn't about where's my shots, where's my playing time. They were happy to be in the moment with their teammates and that people like Ariema and Summit, they're able to get the high-level players who didn't care if they had five or six other great players they wanted to be on that team so dynasties were easier to build in women's basketball because they were getting all the best players and the best players weren't spread out because women didn't it didn't matter to them that uh they got 30 shots in high school and now they only maybe get 10 they wanted to be a part of it and so that allowed those two those programs and, and Stanford obviously has been really good over the years too, uh, and there's more than just a couple. And now we got Baylor and Notre Dame, and we all know who the teams are. Uh, that they were able to build them because women wanted to be a part of that, and they didn't care necessarily about their shots. Whereas the men, you just wouldn't have that. So I, what I think, I, I think that's interesting. The reason um, that I had Oriyama on that list in my mind is he. They're getting beat now, and he's actually created the environment that's getting him beat. Like, to me, that's kind of the ultimate, right? When you've elevated the whole entire sport to a level that nobody now can beat you. So I think you're right. I now think there's enough talent because of what they've built. Yeah. Um, or at least it's this 15 years I'd ago. Have to talk to somebody. I'd have to talk to Ashley Battle or one of the players who was the you know seventh player or sixth player at UConn and see if they agree with that. I mean, um, But I think it's, I mean, I, that that was why I actually chose that. It's like I was deciding, you know, you're trying to decide between Pop and Phil. And then I kind of thought about on the other level that, you know, here's this guy who's actually elevated the entire sport to now catch him. David Locke joined us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Uh, so one other thing to hit you up here. Uh, we were discussing Rudy Gobert, his impact on the offense, 
you know, the Jazz are going to have a decision to make in another year and not quite a half, depending on when free agency is, whether it stays in July <laughs> 1 or moves later. You know, a Supermax contract is just a massive commitment. And you start writing checks for $30, $35, $40 million, and the Supermax number can move for multiple reasons. But the point is it'll be an enormous deal. And so, but the game is changing, you know. So you're deciding, is this the way the team needs to be built to win in 2024? You know, what at 2025, what is the game going to look like then? And, and basically the question comes down to, do you need to play five out? Do you need to have five three-point shooters? And then we started discussing the question, well, um, it was something you brought up on the air here, that uh, you know, the number one thing every coach wants is dunks, and nobody gets more dunks than Rudy. So does Rudy create more open three-pointers than adding a fifth three-point shooter would create? And are there any numbers on that? Recognizing the Jazz, it'd be easier if the Jazz had a backup center who shot threes so we could compare but, and you can't really do that, no matter, you know, the Jets just don't have that. So when you hear that, what do you think, what do you know, and what do you guess? Um, I mean, I think the answer on if you're trying to get more threes is you just have to be willing to take contested threes at this point. So that that's really what it comes down to. You have to have a philosophy where the contested three to you is an okay shot, right? So that's, you know, if you look at the teams that are taking the most threes, they're willing to take contested threes. Um, and that's a difficult decision. Like it's kind of contrary to everything you do as a team. You try to move the ball and get better shots and get you know good to great. And if you're in some point, you're deciding that um, you know Houston and Dallas are kind of deciding that they're willing to take you know good. And particularly Minnesota. I mean, Minnesota just decided they were willing to take 43s a game and hit 33 percent of them. Like they took terrible shots, um, but that's their philosophy. Um, so, all right, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the game is evolving. Um, I, um, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. So, all right, the game's evolving. I'm of the viewpoint that there's still the number one thing, and what Milwaukee is doing is denying the rim. Um, they've completely just committed to denying the rim at a level that's never been done before in the league. And statistical research shows that defenses determine the amount of shots at the rim and offense determines the amount of threes. So as a defense, what you can do is take away the rim. There's nobody better in the world at doing that than Rudy. Um, And at some point along the way, teams are going to play five out, and you're going to have to decide the way Milwaukee has that you're willing to let people shoot threes. So Milwaukee, and actually this is the big change that took place this year in the NBA is that the, in the years past, you could deny both the rim and the three. This year, that's not true anymore. There's only one team in the NBA that's in the top five at denying shots at the rim and denying threes, and that's the Jazz. And there's only one other team that's in the top ten at denying shots at the rim and denying threes, and that's Oklahoma City. Um, I got to use prep right there that I never got to use. Um, if you look at the top teams that defend the rim, here's what they rank in just denying shots from three. 28th, 12th, 21st, 5th, 30th, 24th, 29th, and 22nd. So you now have to make a choice defensively 
of which you want. And if I actually take that even further to the top 15, the fascinating one is I believe that all bottom 10 teams in denying the three are in the top 13 or 14 in defending shots at the rim, like across the board. They're all there. 21 through 30, I think, are all on that list. So that's the biggest change in the league. The offenses have gotten too good. The floor is spread too far. You can't deny both, which I think makes Rudy more valuable. Part two of that is that if everyone's denying the rim, then I'm of the belief that those players that are unique enough to be able to get to the rim or on top of the rim are actually more valuable. So while Rudy's dunks are down from a year ago per game, he's still the leader in the NBA at dunks, and he is making the defense collapse to the rim to be able to try to deny him the shot that they're most focused on denying, which is his role to the basket. And so, um, you know, we have to get better at driving and passing out to other shooters and creating another opportunity out of that if Rudy's not available rather than taking the low percentage floater. The difficulty, sorry, there's just a ton to unpack here. The difficulty there is if you actually dig into the numbers, which are pretty interesting, and look at how many passes from the paint to three-point shots there are. Um, They're done by most guys that are 6'6 and 6'5 and 6'7, and Russell Westbrook at 6'4 and particularly strong. So we're asking Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell at six foot one to make a pass that's very difficult for them. Um, and that's, you know, that'll have to evolve, figure that out. Um, but I think Rudy, I actually am of the belief that as the game is evolving, while it feels like the things that Rudy does are being mitigated, he's so elite at them that I actually think they're making Rudy more valuable because he's one of the only ones in the world who can actually do that. Whereas the average center, absolutely. If you have a guy who's a roller but can't really get on the rim, you should have a stretch five. If you have a five who can't really defend at the rim, you might as well play Robert Covington. Um, and so, But Rudy's so elite that I think he does both those. Then the last part of that equation is the max contract, and that's a whole discussion, and it's not my money. Um, but I would remind us what market we're in. I'm good. <laughs> okay, there it is. David, Like that was very concise because you're right. I hesitated to ask that question that late in the interview, but we had said earlier we were going to earlier in the week, and I didn't want to let everybody down. And I uh, honestly, I really wanted to hear your answer personally. So thanks for doing that, David. <laughs> I think it's a fascinating debate. Um I think the question is, to me, the question is, what are you putting behind Rudy? So do you need to have in your other 14 minutes a night a three-point shooter, somebody who does something differently, or should you actually just be consistent for your all 48 minutes? And then the flip side is, if you're going to super max Rudy, you're not paying more than a million dollars for that last piece. And you should never pay more than a, much more than a million dollars for a backup center, actually. There's David Locke talking all things jazz. When we come back, our spring football tour continues with the UCLA Bruins. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. 
from Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280 The Zone and the Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. We are brought to you in part by Larry H. Miller, Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram in Sandy. Find your deals online at lhmdeals.com. We're about to talk here with uh, Ben Bolch, covers the UCLA Bruins for the LA Times. PK, how much faith do you have in the rebuilding job at UCLA? Uh, You know, I thought that it would take a little bit, but I didn't think it would be this difficult. Obviously, it's been a little more difficult than I thought, uh, but I still think that, uh, you know, you've got to give it time. It needs to be done the right way. Uh, They've had some crazy times here so far. Uh, So uh, I think right now I was more encouraged last year than I was the year before. But I'm grateful for UC Los Angeles because – it takes the heat off. For years and years, I've had to hear about ASU being a sleeping giant. Well, now it's, what's wrong with Chip Kelly's team? I know, right? <laughs> so I don't have to hear that. Four and eight was uh, a little bit of a head-scratcher, a little bit of a bizarro. And, but they started one and five, and you know maybe the way they played the second half of the season, they had a, it, was a weird, it was just a weird year all the way around. I mean, some things were predictable. You knew when they scheduled Oklahoma, like, well, that may have been a good idea at the time, but now they're completely overmatched. Right. But to bounce back from that with that crazy come-from-behind win at Washington State where they win 67-63 and are just breaking off 50- and 80-yard touchdowns left and right as they rally to win that game, you're like, that's Chip Kelly football. Even if he can't defend, it's going to be exciting. They're going to win some shootouts. But they— you know, one in five midway through the season. But they got to four and eight, so a little bit of improvement down the stretch, but still. Well, let's talk with Ben Bolch. He covers the UCLA Bruins for the LA Times. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Ben, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. We were just discussing a uh, big picture before we drill into the roster and some of the challenges here the Bruins face. But big picture, how much faith do you have in a rebuilding job after watching the Bruins go 4-5 and five in conference and 4-8 and eight overall in the fall of 2019? Well, I'll be honest with you, not, not a ton. Uh, and, and I base that more so on the talent level of the roster and the recruits coming in than the results in the first two years. I mean, most people know that it takes a little while to get rolling with, with a new regime. Uh, but, you know, beyond just going 7-17 seven and 17 in two years, which was below anybody's expectation, uh, the recruiting has not been where it needs to be to make this an elite Pac-12 program. So to me, that's the most concerning thing. And, and as I've uh, seen, you know, the best players have actually been the ones leaving every year, not coming in. So to me, that's, that's really the most worrisome development right now for UCLA football. I think it was last year the Times did a story of like 65 guys or some outrageous number that have left the program since Chimp Kelly has been there. We know, I think, the tight end, uh, he went to the draft. So there's a couple linebackers who put their names in the grad transfer portal. Is it a matter of him being difficult to play for as opposed to what is exactly going on? Yeah, uh, 
it's you know it's it's a it's a confluence of factors. I mean, certainly there have been some guys who were injured and took medical retirements. There were some guys who uh, you know just wanted to go to a different program to experience a different thing. But I, I think undeniably there is a, a, a factor of. Uh, you know, guys, uh, certain guys not wanting to play for Chip for, for whatever reason. Uh, and the one thing I've kind of observed watching the program is that it doesn't seem like it's a lot of fun to play in. Uh, and then if it's not fun to play in and you're not winning, what do you really have there? And I think that's kind of the big thing confronting Chip Kelly at UCLA football right now is, you know, he, he's known as uh, – you know, at Oregon, they had wild success, you know, so it was easy to have fun regardless of how hard it was to play in that system. Uh, you know, they were winning every week, so that was the fun. At UCLA, they haven't experienced that, and I think that's kind of the biggest challenge they have because obviously he's known as kind of a no-nonsense guy uh, with the way he runs things, so you have to have some success go hand-in-hand hand with that to have any kind of sustainability. So Chip Kelly's known for these great offenses, and he has had some really good running backs over the years, especially go back to Oregon and that, and really dynamic. And Joshua Kelly ran for 1,000 yards, but he's off to the NFL now. Does he have a big-time running back, or does he have the running back by committee that, you know, three guys will run for 1,800 or 2,000 yards? Has he got the running back or running backs that are going to make this go? Well, I think, uh, you know, based on the guys coming back, that doesn't look promising. But they do have an, uh, a grad transfer coming in from Duke um, named Britton Brown, who had some, some pretty good success with Duke uh, when he was not injured. Uh, and that's a big caveat because UCLA's brought in a number of grad transfers who look promising on paper, but then, you know, their injuries either caught up with them or they experienced new injuries. Uh, but but if you if you look at what he's been able to d- do and take the injuries off the table, he could be that kind of every down back that they're looking for to replace Joshua Kelly uh, on the roster as it stands now. Um, the one guy that you would look look at is Demetric Felton uh, coming back. He's kind of an electric playmaker, but you know as when, when Josh Kelly was out early in the season, they asked him to be that every down back, and it didn't really turn out uh, to be that productive. I think he's more of a change of pace guy. He's super fast. He needs to get in space. So they, put, they put him in the slot quite a bit. Uh, so he's kind of that like uh, guy you, you want to move around and not, not you know, line up in the backfield and carry the ball every time. So they're going to need somebody else to emerge, certainly. I think that this grad transfer from Duke would be, would be my top candidate uh, unless uh, one of the younger guys who hasn't really done much uh, can, can kind of step up. They had three freshmen that, that we thought were going to be uh, you know, at least role players last year who, who didn't even get a single carry. Uh, so, so that was a little bit surprising. Uh, they've got a ton of running backs, but they really need somebody to step up for sure. I have a little bit of optimism in the run game because we know Chip Kelly has had a great number of running backs at Oregon. And I look at Kelly, you know, what was he, a Davis transfer? And by the way, we, we, we go down for uh, down there at uh, Hollywood and Highland and every year for media day. And, and I, didn't find a more delightful kid than Joshua Kelly. He was so fun to talk to. And he was such a success story. I wasn't expected to do what he did, but yet he bet on himself and he did it. So I'm wondering whether it's Felton. I don't even know. Are they going to keep Felton at running back? Because I know he was switching back and forth from receiver. But I do expect them to be able to run the ball because if they can't, then they're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I think that he's going to be in the mix to start the year. And then maybe, you know, Chip, the, the, the one pattern I've seen uh, in Chip's first two years is 
first handful of games, he's going to throw a lot of guys in the mix there and look for roles to kind of define themselves uh, and then put those guys in the best positions uh, to help the team. Uh, and that's what we kind of saw last year and, and the year before when it really took four games to cement Josh Kelly as, as the guy at UCLA and then took off and, and, and was that for the rest of his uh, career uh, with the Bruins. So, uh, yeah, I would think that, you know, the first handful of games, uh, whenever they're played, uh, we'll, we'll see a, a big rotation and that will get winnowed down. So quarterback play has been an issue. Dorian Thompson-Robinson had a couple years invested in him. Where do things stand at quarterback? Yeah, that's like he, he's probably the biggest factor that's going to determine UCLA's success uh, next season. Can he take the next step that you know a lot of people thought uh, he was going to take after his freshman year? Uh, and and you know he he certainly had some games last year where you were like, wow, this guy uh, he he can be something special, especially uh, in that Washington State comeback when he you know went for over 500 yards and then. Even in the SC game, when they basically got blown out, he really stood in there uh, and had a really kind of gritty showing. Uh, and those are, you know, some, some moments where you're like, he's, he's legit, but then, you know, he'll have a game where he'll lose the ball twice without getting touched. You know, he, he, his fumbles were a huge issue last year. I think he finished the year with 19 turnovers, fumbles, and interceptions combined. And, you know, he's got to at least cut that in half for, for UCLA to make any kind of noise uh next season so that's that's the big thing and 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 he's he's always had you know a good strong arm but the thing that he really also needs to improve on is his touch passes because you know a lot of times he'll be uh rolling out and have an open receiver you know five ten yards away and he, he can't hit him for whatever reason so those are those are the two things that i think that uh he really needs to take that the big leap in that would make him uh you know a, a top tier pac 12 quarterback so you look at defensively, I, mean, I think they had like six seniors, uh, linebacker, who are going to be gone, and then a couple guys, I said, put their name in the transfer. Seems like they're going to be hurting there, although I, I, if I remember correctly, Calvert's a pretty good linebacker who had some academic issues and maybe played in a game or two last year. Is he going to be okay and be the leader on that linebacking core? Yeah, I, I think he's going to have a, a really good year, as you alluded to. He barely played last year. He was actually an NCAA suspension. They wouldn't ever specify what it was but uh he basically missed the whole season and and yeah their their whole linebacking crew is gone the, the the one interesting thing uh they they brought in uh Brian Norwood from Navy to be kind of the uh passing defensive passing game coordinator uh and and I'm I'm interested to see if we see some kind of schematic switches even though he's not the defensive coordinator you know maybe they'll uh, go to, to something more like, you know, a 5-4-2 we've heard of or uh, some kind of hybrid look that, that might be a little bit different from what they've done the first two years with Jerry Azanaro as a defensive coordinator because, let's face it, uh, they haven't been uh, good at all in defense. And last year, in fact, they were historically bad in, in a couple of categories. So something needs to change there. You know, they've got a lot of turnover. I think the defensive line and, and secondary should be in pretty good shape. But the big question mark is you're you're replacing every – starting linebacker that's that's uh that's a big hole that they have to fill um so i'll be interested to see uh, what kind of changes they do they make to try to negate that is uh is something that could be an issue so that brings us to uh you know the d line and what you talk about how stuff is messed up and it's been messed up for a long time 
mean, do you go back to 2016 and Joe Williams comes out of retirement and runs for 335 yards and, and UCLA gets pushed all over the place? And with the previous administration, I remember, uh, I can't even remember which new coach it was who came in who ended the tradition of the players going over the wall and missing practice on the last day of practice. And I, and I remember, was that Mora who did that? Yeah. yeah. And I remember yeah. Neuheisel talking about, well, we're not committed, we practice on an 80 yard field. You know, we don't have we don't even have basic facilities like a 100 yard practice field, and it's just like the accumulation of all these things. Has it caught up to the program and in recruiting over a long period of time? You know, you don't notice it every year. They're in LA. They play in a beautiful stadium. There's a lot of talent around there. But has all this stuff just caught up? Because the defensive line shouldn't get pushed around and be given up 335 yards. Well, I will say there, you know, you mentioned the, the 80-yard field. Uh, their facilities right now are, are among the best in the country. They've got the beautiful new uh, Wasserman Football Center. Uh, their field is still 80 yards, but, you know, I've never heard anybody uh, say anything about that since that, that kind of infamous quip that, that went out there. Um, and and I, I don't think it's a factor at all. I think that these guys uh, can get exactly what they need out of that. But, you know, it's just a confluence of things. It's, uh, you know, a lot of turnover in coaching, not only just head coaches, but assistants. Uh, they've had, you know, multiple different D-line coaches. Um, they've had they, they lost a good one in Angus McClure, who, who now is at Cal, who uh, was a great recruiter uh, and, and brought in a lot of key guys like Tack McKinley with the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, and, and Brian Clark and some others who uh, were, were really good guys. And, and, and recently uh, they, they've kind of uh, haven't had that success. Uh, and, and, and another factor I should mention, you know, they, they kind of uh, wanted to go 3-4 uh, with Chip Kelly uh, and get kind of these big uh, hole pluggers up there like Antonio Maffi who weighed like 400 pounds. And then last year they kind of de-emphasized the big guys and went smaller and quicker uh, and, you know, their depth wasn't really uh, great to do that, and they had some guys that they basically weren't using. So I think they've just kind of been in a constant flux there. Uh, they've had some recruiting misses and a lot of turnover, and you add that up together, uh, that's not, uh, not going to make you have a lot of success. So I think that uh, more than half of the roster were freshmen from last season. I think it was at 53%. And they played eight true freshmen. Two of those guys played along the offensive line who are expected to be back, led by uh, Kyle Phillips, who was a redshirt freshman. So can I expect that offensive line to be good? Because if so, that's a good sign. Yeah, I think it'll be uh, a decent starting unit. The key is going to be can they develop guys uh, in case of the inevitable injury or two that we know that they'll probably have. Because right now I think their depth is – pretty slender uh there they've got some guys that they think could be good but you know with this everybody stuck at home right now and they're missing out on spring football and and who knows you know if we'll have to have a truncated uh training camp going into the season those are kind of development times that you really need when you've got a bunch of young guys that you're trying to bring up through the ranks so that could be a factor in in getting guys ready and, and really having kind of the depth they need to withstand any sort of injury. But, you know, knock on wood, if UCLA can avoid injuries, I think their line will be uh, as good or better than, than last year. And it will, certainly will need to be to help both uh, Dorian and uh, whoever ends up replacing Josh Kelly because that's obviously the foundation of any offense. 
So as they go out and recruit, how do they spin the tiny crowds? And I know the Rose Bowl is a massive facility, and I've been in it when there have been 45,000 people at a game, and that just happens sometimes. But it looked like they had ten or 15 or 20,000 people at multiple games last year. How do you spin that when you're trying to recruit? Yeah, it's really hard, and I think the optics, you know, anybody – watching on TV or, or, or certainly obviously if you're at the games, it's, uh, it's not a pretty sight. And last year, as you alluded to, they, they set an all-time low uh, record uh, attendance. I can't remember what the exact number was, somewhere in the 40s, 40,000s uh, for average attendance. And, and uh, you know, that included having Oklahoma come and, and bring in a, a great uh, visiting crowd. So uh, I don't know that there really is any way to spin it. I mean, they can. You can certainly say, "Oh, well, you know, there's so many more options, uh, especially in LA, for sports and entertainment. There's a lot of professional teams." But ultimately, we all know that uh, you know they just have to win to to turn that around. Because it was only 2014, six six short years ago, that Jim Mora uh, and the Bruins averaged 77,000, which is uh, you know pretty darn impressive. Uh, and I think they were, you know, in the top ten in the nation uh, for for average crowds. So, uh, you know, you just need to get some excitement and buzz going, and 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 that will kind of solve itself. So the Bruins' home games this season, hopefully, we have them. They have themes: the beach game, the pride game, educators' appreciation, higher education the Hispanic, Los Bruins, healthcare professionals, and then first responders game. Which is your favorite? Well, you got to go with the first responders, right? I mean, uh, and healthcare professionals, especially people at this time, everybody who is out there uh, helping others and saving lives. Uh, that's you know, we we joke about some of these kind of hokey things, but uh, that's a that's a real legit thing, and uh, certainly I'll, I'll be standing with everybody else when when they honor these people. So it would be great if all of these games happen. We're not in California. We hear some stuff the governor is saying there. You probably hear more, and you probably talk to people around the program. Do you, do you think you're going to be covering games in September and October? And if not, then then when? Yeah, it's a million-dollar question, right? I mean, I think today was the, is the first day that they're uh, reopening hiking trails uh, here in California, which, you know, is a huge deal here, but you know it's it's probably not a big step in the direction of playing a college football game. Um, UCLA is a little bit different than some of the other schools uh, in that they, in theory, have a little bit more time to decide because they're on the quarter system and their uh, fall quarter doesn't start till the third week in September. Um, obviously, right now everything's still online, uh, but there's just so many questions that have to be answered and. Uh, you know, I, I think that it'll probably be a Pac-12-wide kind of consensus decision. I don't know that, you know, you know, Stanford and Arizona will play and, and certain other schools wouldn't. I would think that they would have to have some uniformity and consensus in, in a plan going forward. And as we all know, you know, the different states with different uh, sets of uh, hotspot uh, situations and things like that are going to really complicate it. So, um, you know, they, they say that uh, it's basically going to be uh, based on our students on campus and can they bring the athletes back and, and play these games safely. I think those are kind of the two big uh, hurdles that have to be cleared before we see college football. Bruins have had the last five years, I think they've had three tight ends drafted, including this year. they got anybody else in line to be really good at that position? You know, they've got some young guys, uh, but, you know, it's it's interesting because this went from 
literally kind of the one thing that that made Chip Kelly uh, go with this kind of uh, quizzical offense that people were like, you know, expecting something closer to the blur, and, and they come in and it's like a tight end heavy pro style set. Uh, he, you know, he, he pointed to the the bevy of tight ends that they had when he arrived as the reason for that. And now it's kind of the complete opposite. I mean, they're down to, uh, you know, giving uh, walk-on scholarships just because they don't really have the depth there now. Um, you know, they've got some young and, uh, and, and, and potentially promising guys, but uh, really no proven depth. I mean, they've got basically a, a freshman and, and a walk-on that I just alluded to. We've got a scholarship, Greg Dulcich, uh, coming up as kind of the top returning guys, and they only caught – a handful of, of passes between them. So yeah, I, I, it was going to be, you know, one of my first questions in the spring, we only got to talk to Chip once, is are, are you going to change the, the look of this offense? Because, you know, you said that you went this way uh, to utilize the tight ends, and he had as many as three and four on the field at the time, and now he doesn't have that depth. So I'm interested to see if that kind of changes the look of UCLA's offense, and, you know, maybe they will go to more of a, a spread look because their receivers, to me right now, are the strength. Uh, of this team offensively. Ben, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, anytime. Thank you so much. There's Ben Bolts from the LA Times. When we come back, all the headlines, what is trending next?